0: Welcome to the inaugural episode of our podcast Finding Joy. In this episode, Mike and Brian introduce themselves and in a glimpse at the start of Live Love app. And we'll dive into Angular 14 and the new standalone components that are now in developer preview. For our news of the week segment, Mike and Brian talk about an article written by Nolan Lawson that discusses how the balance may be shifting away from SPAs and towards MPAs. We'll also share ways how you can handle brutal feedback from a colleague in the workplace. Join us for regular conversations on all things developer, deep dives into design, and a special delivery of the latest trends, tips, and techniques, all while finding absolute joy along the way. And a special welcome to our co-hosts and co-founders, Brian Love and Mike Ryan.
1: All right, welcome to the show. Uh, This is our first podcast here on Finding Absolute Joy and i am brian love your host and today and always my co-host is mr mike ryan
2: mike welcome thank you for having me yeah i'll try to always be your co-host on this one i'm That's excited fantastic. to be here and i hope you'll always be my co-host here as well <laughs> how are you uh i'm doing exceptionally well um, for those who do not know i just moved to portland oregon two months ago for this That's right portland weather and it's a 70 degree day Blue sky. I want to be outside hiking. Um, but instead I get the absolute joy of getting to talk to my buddy about some tech news <laughs> that's been coming around recently.
1: <laughs> that's right.
2: That's right. Uh and so
1: obviously you hit Portland at the right time, right? You moved yes. in uh in the last month or two or something like that, right? Two that's months. right. That's yeah. a... It's it's just a little yeah. over
2: two months now. And
1: uh you obviously missed the the gloomy rain rainy season. So you're into yes. like the nice warm dry beautiful portland weather
2: yes it you know i don't want to think of portland as being like a siren but in a way it is because it it tempts you you know you come to portland at this time of year and the wildflowers are blooming and the roses are perfuming on the roads and all the portlanders are escaping their seasonal depression from the winter so they're all smiles and happy everybody's out and about everyone's out and about and so the city is just full of life and color and you're like wow this city seems incredible and then you hear all of these rumors about the dark winter ahead. And so right now I'm still being enchanted by the beauty of the city. And I'm trying to set my expectations accordingly for the dark rain that uh, I will have to go through for this joy.
1: And, and speaking of roses, you, you adopted a bed of roses, I do recall. I know exactly where they are. <laughs> oh, do you? Tell, tell us a little bit more about that.
2: <laughs> yeah, so uh, this is actually thanks to Brian um so portland is called the rose city no, rose no, no, no. Is- thanks to m- thanks to my wife that's right brian's wife credit, Bonnie, credit um, to do. go ahead she put me onto this there's a, a it's i think it's owned by the city of portland if i'm not mistaken no, it's, it's actually lads- it's owned by like lads edition neighborhood association oh okay cool i didn't know that yep. so it's a little bit more locally owned. yeah so there's a neighborhood not too far away from the part of portland that i'm living in called the lads edition garden and basically there's four different rose gardens that kind of make a diamond shape um, and there's a lot of rose beds in each of these gardens, and so Bonnie said, "Hey, Mike, you just moved to Portland, the Rose City. Go adopt some roses." And uh, sure enough, I did. I am the proud father of Sparkle and Shine in the father. West Lot. I would, say, I mean, father feels appropriate, right? I'm bringing these roses Hi. to life. More like dad them. Aren't they like? <laughs> Aren't they like fifty year old? Fifty years old? I mean, that is didn't... true. My rose bed is older than I am. Um, yeah, <laughs> But the roses, them, the, the, the rose beds are older, but these roses are fresh, right? They I mean, fresh. that's kind of how that works. And so it's my responsibility actually starting this upcoming weekend to, uh, to keep them weeded and to deadhead them. And I don't know. I don't know anything about this. I've been told I'm going to get cut up by some thorns. I'm excited to learn. I'm excited to spend some time in the sun and uh, tend to my rose garden. It feels appropriate somehow.
1: With what what people may not know that are listening to this for whatever reason, uh, they may not know that Mike's rose bed is literally next to the rose bed that I had for two years before I moved out of Portland. And the roses that I had are just <laughs> like <bastard-like> r- roses. <laughs> Can we get a beep beep? <laughs> beep that out? I mean, these things are just mean. What are they called? Cashmeres, I think they're mm-hmm. gorgeously like dark red. But the thorns on them are just huge. They're <laughs> like, they're, they're like, I don't know. They're coming at you. Uh, so you're enjoying your move to Portland, yeah. Uh, enjoying the weather, and then I've moved recently as well. So I'm now located in Central Oregon, um, which beautiful a lot Bend. Of people don't, beautiful Bend, Oregon. A lot of people don't know Central Oregon looks a lot like New Mexico. I would say, right, in terms of like the tree and the foliage and all of that. Right. It's not. A lot of people think of Oregon as like massive tall pine trees and like lush forests, which is certainly the case in the Cascades and like where you yep. are in the Willamette Valley and off by the coast. But as you move up in elevation and up into like central and eastern Oregon, it actually becomes more desert-like. It's like a semi-dry, yeah.
2: desert-like environment. Imagine um, but... few shrubs, canyons, rivers. I mean, it's quite different from what you might imagine uh, yeah. Oregon to look like. Yeah. But... So are you enjoying well, the move we're... so far? Have you
1: So so far, yes, so far, so good. We're just waiting for our house to be built, which was supposed (laughs) to be done in May or June. Now it's looking like August. So that's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's not the only big addition that you've had in uh, the band. That's right. Yeah. We welcomed our first child uh, to our family. And so we have currently a seven week old and uh, she's a champion. She's got lots of nicknames. I call her currently the sucker or just a great sucker because she is. (laughs) And so <laughs> well, she's doing very well and we are learning lots of things about her and ourselves at the same time. So it's been super that's fun. It. Yeah. When I,
2: when I first started talking to Brian about starting live, love app, he, uh, had this plan, the three B's, the three B's, do you remember him. what they are? That's right. I do remember bend baby Bassett. So yes. The that's plan right. is to move to bend, have a baby and get a Bassett hound. And we have
1: a basset hound, in theory, an unborn basset hound in Idaho. We've been put, we've been put in touch with a, a purebred basset hound breeder in Idaho. And it's quote, unquote, as soon as she goes into heat, we'll find out. That's what he told us. It's like, okay, great. Feels a little weird to me, but it's like, okay,
2: fantastic.
1: In, in theory, we're number one or whatever on the list. I don't you know how that
2: all works. We'll see how that shapes out. But... Well, yes. I'm so excited here. It's been it's been just an absolute joy getting to watch y'all go through this process of moving to Bend, having the baby, and um, I'm excited for all the puppy pictures that all the puppy uh, pictures.
1: Wait, are you excited for the puppy pictures or the baby pictures more or less?
2: Well, <laughs> I I love the baby pictures, but those I feel like aren't going to be shared very widely. Whereas i feel That's like there's true. a lot less
1: risk of seeing the puppy the, pictures the puppy pictures will be all over the insta but yeah right now we've chosen not to put our daughter on social media uh, it feels weird to make that decision for her so um so you'll see like the back of her head on instagram or like but <laughs> well, you won't really see like her face or like anything like that but
2: um my favorite is she, getting to see baby evelyn on uh some client calls and watching her have a little bit of spit up on brian and watching Brian activate dad mode, throw the camera off, get cleaned up, get back on camera and continue the client <laughs> call. Like nothing's happened. It happens though. I, there wasn't a client call. I think that was there just wasn't. A call. Yeah. It
1: was I, a I work know, call. It was a work call. I don't know. Like, yeah, even in today's day and age of like work from home, that seems like some sort of boundary, right? <laughs> like, you know, burping your child in front of a client. I'm not sure if that's, Uh, I'm sure some clients wouldn't mind, but others might be kind of distracted or find it distracting.
2: So yeah, you had the three B's plan right as we started Live Love app. And now we're almost exactly a year into this journey. So why now a podcast? Yeah, that's a great question. Why a podcast, Mike? (laughs) (laughs) I turn it back on you. Just immediately flip that back on me. Yeah, you know, it's funny when Brian and I get asked about Live Love App, it's always like, well, how long have you been at this? And it's such a confusing question because Live Love App has technically had, in my opinion, three start dates. And so the first one was what in 2019, when uh, Brian left his full-time job to kind of go do some solo consulting. And so Live Love App existed as this business entity to uh, let Brian do that consulting through. And then in 2021, in a similarly glorious fashion, I left my full-time job. And I kind of reached out to my professional network. And I said, you know, to a bunch of colleagues of mine, hey, I'm looking for work. What should I do next? And one person I reached out to in particular was Brian, hoping that he would uh, let me work with him. And to the character of Brian, he said, you know, I wish I could hire you, but I can't give you any benefits. So you should go talk to these 10 other companies. I said no salary,
1: no, (laughs) no
2: salary, no benefits, nothing. I can't offer you anything. So don't even like. This isn't going to work out. Go talk to these people. And I said, I like the sound of that salary and no benefits. So Brian hopped on a plane to convince me that no salary and no benefits would be a worthwhile endeavor. And he visited me in beautiful Huntsville, Alabama.
1: It was my first trip to Huntsville. That was. I'd never been seen, actually it was my first trip North to Alabama. Alabama. I don't think I've actually right. technically <laughs> ever been to Alabama before that. Because I've been a, a couple of times. you I've been to like Atlanta because you fly sure. through Georgia. Who doesn't? Right. But yeah, that was uh, the first trip down to good old Alabama.
2: <laughs> so I'd say that that's kind of like the second start date for Live Love App, but it was is an unusual start date in that it was kind of like a, um, it's kind of like dating. Like Brian and I said, soft commitment. Let's kind of do this in a way where you're not going to firm this up until January, 2022. And that also gave we me had an opportunity. A date, technically
1: I think we just yeah. said, you were like, I was like, you just come in as a subcontractor, I'm going yeah. to pitch you some work, see if you like it, right, yeah. type of thing. Like, we could find out in three months that like, nah, I don't want to do this, or maybe right. you get a great offer or whatever, who knows how life goes. I mean, so Brian and I had like never worked with each other.
2: I'd, I'd say we're kind of like loose acquaintances at that point. Um, so it's yeah, a bit yeah, of a risk for both of each us. Other a lot. Exactly. Yeah. So that that first six months was really kind of a light work. I mean, Brian was full-time, but I was very part-time with Live Love App and um, you had retired kind of is what and, you
1: told people. Don't lie.
2: I told party. You had a
1: retirement party. You said you retired.
2: <laughs> no, I and mean, it'd be a fun it'd be a fun story to talk about that six months in a different episode. But it's basically an opportunity for me to kind of go through that, like a mental and physical health journey and kind of reset my own life in a lot of different ways. And it kind of explains why I'm in Portland now. But essentially we we did that six month dance that soft commitment and then in january we started for real we said let's let's really bunker down turn live love app into a business let's commit to this and try and grow something together yep. where we're focusing on great work life balance delivering exceptional quality to our clients building a consultancy that we can really be proud of while also setting or planting the seeds um, for building a product company in the future so that's a really long answer as to why a podcast. Well, we're we're hitting a stage of growth now where we have a lovely marketing coordinator that's joined the team a couple of months ago, Marin. and as part of that marketing effort, um, it turns out we need to create some content. And uh, Brian has a lot of podcast experience. He has uh, been on the English Show for how many years now? At least a couple. Uh, I think we've done the English
1: show for two or three years, and then I was also on the Adventures in Angular uh, for about a year and a half prior to. So I think it's been close to three or four years, something like that, ish. Yeah.
2: So we kind of decided let's let's put a microphone on the two of us. Let's hang out like we often do, and uh, you know, see if there's some interest in sharing some of the tech news that we're discovering on a weekly basis, some of the things that we're doing to find joy in our lives, whether that be professionally or personally, and and just sort of build a conversation around tech in general. That's right. So let's dive in. Let's talk about, we've got a couple of things we want to talk
1: about this week. We want to talk about first, Angular 14 uh, has been released June 2nd, I believe. Uh, so we're a little less... Uh, as to the recording date of this, we're a little less than a week out of the Angular 14 release. And we've got a blog post that uh, we're going to publish as well that's going to kind of go alongside this that'll kind of help break down some of the more detailed kind of nuances and some of the code. Uh, and then we also wanted to talk about a few things. We want to talk about a blog, another blog post uh, called The Balance Has Shifted Away From Spas. So we'll get into that shortly. And then we also want to talk about an interesting blog post that I saw on Dev.2, and somebody was asking how to handle brutal feedback from a colleague. And so that'll be kind of a fun thing to kind of talk through. There's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of complexity and situational aspects to that. Uh, But it'll still be fun for us to kind of just chat about how do we deal with feedback in the world of software engineering? Because feedback is a good thing on one hand, but feedback can certainly kind of creep into uh, maybe uncomfortable situations or uh, toxic situations, and how to deal with those. So let's dive into Angular 14. So Angular 14 launched on June 2nd, like I said. Uh, and Angular 14 is, I don't know, arguably the biggest release since version 9. And really, that's more of a technical thing, because version 9 introduced this new compilation and rendering engine called Ivy. But for a lot of us that probably didn't mean any change to our code right so it's kind of this under the hood type of thing that you know for something kind of maybe some improvements but really just kind of this new engine under the hood um, so it was a big release in that regard and for library art authors like yourself mike ivy was kind of a big change in how that worked but for a lot of angular developers i think you just kind of kept you know, moving along um, and and kept working on your application or building applications using Angular. But one of there's a couple of things in particular about Angular 14 that stand out. Um, And it's really interesting, I think, for me, having followed Angular for many years, and I know you have as well, Mike, um, you know, Angular oftentimes has kind of hinted at future releases and stuff. And they actually released a roadmap, I think, about two years ago. And they said, okay, we're going to actually come out and say, here are things that are on our... Tentative kind of things that we're interested in pursuing. Um, this was kind of the post Ivy world. We'd kind of there been some shaked up internally, I think, on the team. there it was kind of like, hey, you know, where are we going to go after this huge? What was Ivy like a three year long project? I mean, tons of money spent on this, tons of effort. Uh, but then, kind of what what would that future look like in a post Ivy world, where Ivy also kind of enabled some of the the future innovation that the Angular team could put forth. And a couple of ideas came out of that um there's you can go check out the roadmap on angular.io um, but in particular a couple of them that stood out is uh, kind of this idea of standalone components not needing ng modules um, and right off the bat i think as we talk through this mike i'm probably going to say things like without modules and when i say without modules i'm not talking about ECMAScript modules i'm talking specifically around ng modules or which for this kind of additional nuancing that we've had in Angular since the early days to kind of wrap things up. Right? And then we also have uh, typed forms, which has been a longstanding uh, issue and something that a lot of people in the community have been looking for, for an official solution from Angular. There's been other library authors out there that have kind of released typed-formed packages, but this kind of comes directly from the team, uh, directly from the Angular core package or I guess, Angular forms package. Uh, And then uh, there's also a little bit of improvements around, I think, testing. There's a little bit of a story around testing as well in Angular 14, but we'll probably just barely touch on that. We'll probably focus mostly on standalone components and type forms. So Mike, how excited are you for
2: standalone components? Well, Brian, let's just say hypothetically, I don't write a lot of Angular and i'm not really plugged in angular War. this is for that, that mic doesn't write a lot of angular doesn't too plug that's anymore. not a hypothetical but go ahead <laughs> <laughs> let's pretend like i'm a react developer most of the time. most of the time these days okay as a react developer help me understand now what's different between writing like an angular component and a react component in yeah. Angular 14.
1: that's a great question i think that's a good perspective to take on it so if i'm a react developer and i want to build a component i just create a new file like a TSX or JSX file. Uh, it's gonna run through something like Babel, right? Uh, or or whatever, you know, web pack, some sort of bundler. But really, as a developer, without worrying about the build process, I just create a component and I can write a class-based component or a functional component. And I think functional components are certainly my preference. And I think that's becoming the preference, especially with the release of hooks in version 16, I think it was. Um, and so, um, As a React developer, I just create a new file, I create a component, I export this component, and I just kind of use it, right? And if I want another component, I just import it and I just use it, right? I don't have to worry about any sort of other code orchestration or boilerplate or code cost in order to kind of make the React compiler and Babel and everything aware of these other components. All I do is create a file if I want to use other other components, I create a file, and I just import them using EquiScript standard imports, and I just use it, right? Yeah, and um, it's
2: fantastic. Like, it's super productive, and I love it's it. It's super
1: productive. And, and most of the time, you're creating single file components or SFCs, right.
2: right? So everything lives in,
1: usually in one file. So you might have uh, some – you could be doing something like styled components or um, what are some of the other – react based like emotion CSS and JS. emotion that's what i was thinking of yeah um, like css and js or whatever it is or if you're using nas they kind of have their own module based approach but you just really just have one file you have your styles in there you have your component your jsx in there you have all your hooks you have your logic everything's just kind of yep. boom done in the yep. angular world we have this thing called a CLI, which is a beautiful thing, but at the same token, a necessity because of the complexities around Angular. So when I want to create a new component in Angular, usually I end up with four files. That's I have right. a CSS file or SCSS or whatever style. I have a JS file or a TS file. I have an HTML template, and then I have a test file, a spec file right yeah and so there might I be a fifth cool. one for the ng module right and then there's a module that goes along with it and that ng module basically has to tell the compiler hey through some metadata and a uh you know basically say hey i you got to declare this component you got to import these other modules and i need to set up some dependency injection so here's my providers and all of this um which also though, the the good thing about this is the routing story was kind of unique to Angular and ng modules, because that's kind of how the routing story lived was through modules. And also the dependency injection story was kind of written through modules as well. That's kind of how you wired up your providers, and you could uh, you know in tests, you can override providers and have factory providers and all of that stuff. So, does that answer the question or did I go too far there? Yeah,
2: no, that, that definitely answers the question. And so from what seems to be the big change with Angular 14 is the ability to write components more like I'm used to with React where you could actually have these single file components. You can always, you could always have a single file component from the perspective of having your HTML and CSS and you in, could. In the same type of file. So that part's yes. not new in Angular 14. What is new is a lot of that metadata around the NG module. Theoretically disappears or becomes part of the component declaration itself so that if I'm an Angular developer, I could have these single file components where I create components and if I want to use that in another component, I just import it, drop it into the imports of that component, and away I go. A lot Mm -hmm. less ceremony to actually setting up and wiring components for my Angular app. So the question, though, I think probably a lot of people have on their
1: minds is, okay, this sounds great, Mike. But what about the the NG modules I have in my application today? Like, am I just like, are they gone? What do I do? Like, what what does that look like?
2: Yeah. And they're not gone. The the reality of Angular 14 is that these standalone components is actually more of a developer preview. So while it is part of the official release and there's gonna be a lot of excitement about it, this is just a preview stage. So there could be breaking changes. There could be major modifications, developer experience here. These are basically like an optional or alternative way to write Angular apps. NG modules are still the preferred way or the best supported way. And I think as developers start to adopt standalone components, what we're going to find is that the NG modules don't go away for a long time. You can interop between the two. You can have an Angular app that is a mixture of both. NG modules aren't being deprecated yet. They're not being removed from the framework. Um, they still live and exist and will continue to operate harmoniously with standalone components. That's right.
1: Yeah. And so without NG modules, the API though has changed a little bit around components. So we've got this new metadata flag called standalone. So you're gonna set that to true. And that's gonna turn it into a standalone component. Tell the compiler, hey, this this yeah, thing. That's in of the lives component along. decorator. Yep, that's in the component decorator. Uh, but then you also need to because you don't have modules you also have to import stuff into that component right so if i'm using material i've got to use the imports property in the component decorator to also kind of import other modules or other components so that way the component knows about it and then there's also a story around routing that happens at the component level because now without ng modules we kind of don't have routing set up within a module Um, so that's a little bit different and the dependency injection story is a little bit different with components as well, uh, because now, and we've had this for a while, a lot of people didn't, didn't I, myself included, didn't really use providers at a component level. I think the main use case for providers at a component level was kind of component store by the NGRX team yeah. um, or something like that. Um, or building your own form
2: controls maybe
1: or your own validators. That's right. Yep. Yeah, but a lot of times, like you just set up your providers, your dependency injection at a module level, whereas now that kind of flows down into your standalone component level. That's right. So have you, uh, what are we thinking? Are we thinking this is a game changer? Or are we thinking that this is just a developer experience change? Kind of what's the general takeaway?
2: Yeah, you know, for me, I think anytime You can make a change to the framework where developers have to write less code to do the same thing that's going to be a win and this is one of those cases where it's just it's going to be less code to write angular apps if the community overall chooses to accept standalone components so i'm really hopeful that's the case it's going to require a lot of support from library authors to update their libraries to be able to be used in angular applications that are fully built with standalone components so this might be a long transition period honestly um, but assuming that that transition period goes well, uh, I'm really excited for the future of any of this that this brings about. There's also like, I don't, I don't think this is hit on in this blog post necessarily, but as a library author, there's this new piece of the puzzle that is introduced to standalone components and it gets wrapped up in the conversation about standalone components. Though it's a fairly separate piece and that's the inject function. Have you heard of this, Brian? Right. I have. I've, I've seen uh,
1: some online Twitter Talk about this. I know Brandon Roberts has kind of chatted a bit about this, and this kind of because, if I understand correctly, Mike, because of this this change to standalone components, they kind of needed to introduce this new API around dependency injection to enable right. standalone components to inject providers at. It's not. A, it's still at build time. It's not at runtime. Uh, it's, but kind of. What's that?
2: It's actually at runtime now. It is at runtime. Okay, so tell me yeah. more about it. Okay, so. At a technical level, Brian's absolutely correct. Because of standalone components, the Angular framework needed a different way to handle dependency injection. So basically, the way components get compiled and constructed, they needed a new function to inject dependencies into those components. So as an Angular developer, the way that we often consume dependency injection inside of our components is via the signature of our constructor. So if we wanted to inject the HTTP client, for example, In the signature of our constructor, we would say, I want you to give me um, something called HTTP, and the type of that is HTTP client. The Angular compiler looks at that type annotation, figures out what service to inject in that component, and then compiles this code accordingly to be able to inject an instance of HTTP client into that component. To support this for standalone components, there's this new inject function and The way it works is you can call inject in the constructor of a component, passing it in an injectable token, whether that be a class or an injection token, um, right. but that lets you consume a service out of there. It's more code to inject services that way than it is to uh, just use the signature of your constructor. So, like, don't go use inject in your angular applications. It's more code for the same thing. What's exciting about it though, is that inject is just a function. And because it's just a function, library authors, like myself, can wrap that function to do some fairly interesting things. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what this is going to look like yet. Like this is such early days of this. It's kind of like the wild, wild west of Angular. This is like bleeding edge frontier stuff. But let's say you're using NGRX and you want to use a selector in your component. The way you do that today is you'd inject the store via the constructor's signature, and then you'd call store.select passing in your selector, and you'd assign the result of that to a property on the class. So you wanted to select all the books out of the store, you'd say this.books$ equals store.select passing in select all books. A future version of ngRx might wrap that inject function and might give you a function like inject selector. And mm. what you could do then in your component is instead of ever having to inject the store, you could just say books dollar sign give equals selector. inject selector select books. Bypassing the need to have a constructor or any kind of additional uh, work or labor to consume selectors. We could like make it a lot simpler to use selectors components, for example.
1: That also feels a little bit
2: more functional to me. I don't know, it's A lot like- more functional. It's kind right. of like Hooks in a way Ish. from React, Hook-ish. Yeah. It's actually much more similar to Views Composition API if you want to get really technical about it, but because it's Hooks-like or Hooks-ish, I am imagining that in a year or two, the way we build Angular apps could look dramatically different, especially in the ways that we're consuming observables or state libraries. Mm-hmm. Uh, because library authors can now wrap or enhance dependency injection for components. So it, I know it's a bit of a tangent. I hope you followed along with that. Um, I did. I thought it's
1: very interesting. I think the thing that's, it just kind of opens up some exploratory paths.
2: Let's put it that's that right. way. Yeah. It's so early, I think for Angular developers, they're not going to be really impacted by this change, but it, it's kind of funny that standalone components at the surface looks like, oh, we get to drop ng-modules, that's exciting under the hood i think the more exciting change is this dependency injection inversion yeah um, that i think I that's agree. gonna have the biggest ramification for us
1: i agree and while we're talking about dependency injection and kind of how that works in the blog article we also talk about import providers from which is a kind of a new function new api surface that allows us to bring in all the providers from other modules so that's kind of that backwards compatibility story so if i'm using uh you know router module or component the component module from ngrx or whatever it is and i want to bring in providers from a module we do have this new function as well to kind of bring in those providers import those into a standalone component so you're not even though a library may not be maybe still using ng modules there is kind of a way to bring those in as well so you're not stuck Um, Which is nice. We also had a little bit of update to the routing as well. So pretty nice story there in terms of lazy loading individual components, um, which is kind of a feature that some people might be looking for to kind of split out their bundle size in a more granular way. Um, But in general, I want to step back real quick. Mike, is that all right? In general, I think, and I'm going to make these are opinions, and I'm going to make broad statements. In general. In general Angular has kind of become an enterprise framework, right? I, I think we can kind of agree that lots of big companies um, they like Angular because of the kind of OOP approach and lots of reasons. But that um, you know, there's probably about ten to twenty different things on that list of why you know enterprises might favor Angular over other you know frameworks. Yep. on the other hand something like React or Vue might be more popular and kind of a you know quick to move startupy kind of environment where like I don't really need lots of robust you know all batteries included like opinionated framework I just need to move I want to build something um, and I want to build it fast um, and that's just again a broad statement because there's definitely probably on both ends of that there's enterprises that are using React and there's startups are, are using Angular. Um, but I th- if I'm going to make a broad statement, that's the case. And I wonder, Mike, for enterprises, if you're a director of engineering at a large company, and something like Angular 14 drops for standalone components, what's the, is, what's the benefit? kind of to it, and what's the cost, right? I think the benefit, I kind of answer my own question, is maybe I get a little bit more velocity out of my developers, right? It's a little bit less code to maintain. The Code surface shrinks a little bit, maybe a little faster uh, development process. But on the cost side of things, there is a change in mental model. So now my developers do need to learn this. And if I've got a hybrid-based kind of approach where I've got still ng-modules and standalone components, in some parts or some libraries or some parts of my app, I open it up. And there's ng-modules and other parts of my app. I open up the files and I look and they're standalone components and they've got imports and the, the component metadata and all of this stuff. Um, and so I think there's a cost and benefit to both of this. Um, do you generally agree with a lot of my broad statements here? And some Absolutely. of my opinions, or what do you, where do you differ
2: on that? Yeah, I think you're making a really great point. You know, if you're, on, if you're building in an enterprise environment, And again, I I agree with you strongly that Angular probably makes sense like medium to large size teams. Because the mental model is shifting and because libraries are likely to have even more dramatic changes as a result of these new APIs, there's going to be an educational cost over the next couple of years to reskill up on Angular, to shift mental models in Angular. There's going to be a cost to this for these enterprises that adopt Angular. And I wonder if we'll see some enterprises that just don't
1: adopt this at all. Probably. I mean, i got to be honest. And on one hand, like I I need to benefit, I need to weigh these benefits and costs if I'm making, if I'm an architect or whatever at, at a large organization or even a medium organization. It's like, well, do I want a hybrid-based code base where we have standalone components and NG modules? Or do I just want to stick with NG modules because that's what I already have today, right? Yeah. And then in terms of hiring, if I go all in on standalone components, I hire somebody who just uh, doesn't, not that it's a big shift, but it is a shift. Now that's part of like my hiring, oh you know do you are you familiar with the standalone components API? Um, again, I don't think it's a big shift, but I think that it'd be interesting to see if some large enterprises just kind of say, "Nope, we're not doing it right um And the backwards compatibility story is good there, but then it does put kind of i mean on library authors like now you've got to support both use cases. So if NGRX comes out with this inject selector function, you still can't get rid of the select method on the store class, right? right? It's got to still exist because everybody's still using it and people are still building apps doing it. So um, I don't know. I don't think it'll cause too much of a rift or schism in the Angular community, Uh, but I think it could. I think there could be kind of um, some people that either don't adopt or push back, um, which will be interesting to see that play out. One of the things that you mentioned, Mike, is it is a developer preview. So with that said, I think the team is looking for feedback team is looking for people to go out and kind of battle test this kind of see what the use cases are and APIs may change. Uh, there's kind of right. no little asterisks next to it, right? They're not necessarily private APIs, but they could be modified in the future. Sure.
2: Yeah, I'm excited about this. I'm really excited to see what happens with Angular in the next uh, year or two. I think that's got about, about the timeframe it's going to take for us to see the full ramification of this new API. I agree. API. Um, yeah. But- You know, there's a lot more in Angular 14 that I think we might try and hit on in upcoming blog posts and podcasts. You know, there's Mm big changes to, especially forms and form libraries. And we'll start to see some of the first bits and pieces of libraries adopting standalone components. So it'll be fun to kind of follow the story as it develops over the next couple of months.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, I know the type forms is going to be a big thing for some people. I think it's a great thing, but on the other hand, like, I don't know many... Developers, they're like, yay, forms. <laughs> <laughs> I love building forms. <laughs> get me started. Uh, So, I mean, they're like a necessity, but uh, sure. Yeah. Um, I, I, I mean, to... it's probably, sorry, I was just a real push. I, I would say the type thing, it's probably a good thing, you know, again, to that enterprise level customer, if you will, or of Angular. Type forms is a great thing because it gets you a little bit more. Type safety, fewer regressions, things that you can rely on as you continue to build out large. of lots of large applications that rely on forms, and let's be honest, like enterprise applications, are tend to be very form heavy. So, yeah, not a bad thing. All right, let's shift.
2: What are we talking about? Yeah, I wanted to bring up this article. Um, it came out late May, so I'm a little behind on it. But it's the balance has shifted away from spas by Nolan Lawson. So. Have you had a chance to read this yet,
1: Brian? I have. I took a look at this and I'm very interested in this because it feels like the pendulum is swinging back, right? Yes. I mean, in terms of like the last whatever, you know, kind of generation of web applications, you know, we had this like web 2.0 or whatever you want to brand it as, kind of shift towards spas and JavaScript frameworks and all of this stuff. And it does feel kind of in uh nolan's article that he's proposing maybe we're moving back towards kind of a different more classical approach of building applications uh you know using mpas
2: or yeah. multi-page applications so let's let's do some uh some term definition before we get into the meat of this article because i think there's gonna be a lot of acronyms flying around so you've already heard us say spa or spas and that's an spa or single page application and i think if you are a web developer and you have built web applications in the past 10 years chances are pretty high you built that as a single page application because that's been the primary way to build for the web now for what it feels like a better part of a decade and a single page application is basically i've got a single html file and it's going to reference a big old glob of javascript and css a big and old glob Probably a fairly big glob. I mean, we all like to pretend like we can make those glob small. KBs. but it's like, yeah, these are usually well, monsters.
1: let's be honest. How much money is spent on getting that glob smaller in the last 10 years? So much money. Millions.
2: <laughs> Millions. <laughs> I, I might break out the B word and say billions if you consider you all so? the investment. If you consider all the investment that browser vendors have also done alongside these big tech companies to try and like really optimize the web and and bring these cost sizes down, I mean it. It could be maybe not billions, but I could see tens or hundreds, hundreds of millions. I have hundreds of, of millions yeah, of developer dollars spent to make that glob small. But anyways, they're not small, they're big. Let's be honest about it. And so what happens is that browser, you know, loads up that HTML file, executes all that JavaScript, and then the JavaScript that gets executed kind of takes over the experience from there. That's so why we call this a single page application, because it's only a single HTML file at play. Once that JavaScript kicks in, it's going to handle routing from the client side. It's going to handle rendering from the client side. It's going to handle transitioning from page to page, all from the client side. Fetching resources. Fetching, yeah, HTTP requests. Everything at that point is going to kind of be handled client side by the JavaScript code. So you never really change from one HTML page to another. You're on a single page. But from the user's perspective, it's it's like a fully functioning website.
1: And fast. I mean, once in theory, once in you theory. download the giant glob,
2: you're off to the races. Yeah, it's, it's incredibly fast. You can do some really wonderful things from a user experience perspective that and we'll get user into. User experience. Yeah. So the alternative is for the gray-haired JavaScript developers like myself uh, back in the 2000s. exactly yes. <laughs> <You're, you're... laughs> don't, don't, you actually Don't demystify
1: written, it. Have you written MPAs?
2: Oh, absolutely. I would say that my first framework that I got paid to develop would have been um, a Laravel PHP application yep. that used nice. Foundation CSS framework. Uh huh. Yeah, so yeah, I remember Foundation. A little bit of yeah, jQuery. Yeah. So, you know, that kind of dates me a little bit. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, early 2010s, probably. It yep. would have been when that would have been. For sure. So yeah, an MPA or a multi-page application kind of references the, the before times, before SPA's ruled the web. And it works very traditionally. There's a URL, go to that URL, it's going to give you a unique HTML file for that URL with just the CSS and JavaScript needed to render that one page. If you click on a link to visit a different URL, we're gonna get a new HTML file with the the JavaScript and CSS for just that page. And so it's multi-page application because as I go from page to page to page, I've got multiple HTML files for each of those unique pages all of the routing is being handled on the server side. All of the assets are kind of orchestrated, server side. Making requests is all happening, server side. Fetching data, all that all server side. Whatever you're heading. Usually. Yeah. Yeah. Usually. And and these, these are really hard. Like we're kind of setting these as being really hard yeah. differences, but most applications Does, actually end up kind of being it's more like a spectrum, a really. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. So that's that's what an
1: MPA is. And in the MPA world, like JavaScript just kind of augments the experience. Isn't the, I would say, right? Like more traditional MPAs, like you you wrote JavaScript to just kind of, at you know provide additional user experience a little bit of interact really yeah maybe a little animation or something like that you, get,
2: you get your carousel plugin for jQuery so you, you got your carousel you know, rotating carousel there and it looks all fancy and you feel good about yourself. Maybe you've pulled in uh what would be one of the animation libraries you'd have used back in the day green sock? Yeah you'd use green sock animation Never for some really screen sock, okay. Oh, it was it was the rage, all the rage back in the day. You could you know have multiple timelines for animations and get some really cool stuff running on the page. See, I've built these apps. I was there. I, I was you. around. You don't have to sell me. I was doing it for. This is kind of interesting. I, back in those days, I was working for Army Game Studio, the U.S. Oh, Army's right. yeah, yeah. video game studio, based out of Huntsville, Alabama, building interactive the ar- well, on the arsenal in this architecture on Redstone Arsenal. That's right. So anyways the author of this blog post Nolan he's arguing that the balance is shifting away from single page applications which i'd say is the de facto right now back towards multi page applications and what's what i really like about the argument that is being set here is it's not because we've learned that spas were bad or you know that they're a headache or anything like that it's that We've just advanced so much through SPAs and browsers have gotten so much better that we can take a lot of that foundational work that was created to make SPAs great and apply a lot of those same concepts back to MPAs with the new generation of MPA frameworks to build really, really fast web experiences.
1: I'm gonna go off on a tangent and make a joke here. And you're doing a great job, Mike. I'm buckled in. You keep saying SPAs instead of SPAs but we're saying MPAs and we're not, we're not spelling. We're not saying it out phonetically. So let's either let's do spas and paws or MPAs and SBAs. <laughs> that sound good to you. So
2: we're I think pause will be the easiest them to understand, <laughs> right? MPAs.
0: <laughs>
1: well, it's, it's only one M. It's not like a, mm, it's not yummy. It's just pause.
2: Pause. Pause. Well, it's not an E there. So you have to do really a hard pronunciation. Mpa. 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 Uh, That's I'm a talk it. title right there. Mpa to the win. <laughs> M-P-A-F-T-W.
1: Mpa. Okay, go. Sorry. I threw you all okay. off there. But you're right. Yes. So Nolan talks about there's some new advances that have rolled back into the browsers that make Mpa's a realistic approach to having a great user
2: experience. Yes. Uh, So there's like four advantages that I'd say an SPA has over an MPA, maybe, or traditionally, these are advantages. So let's kind of go down through these one by one and talk about how an SPA has this advantage and how things have shifted to make MPAs a little bit better. So first off is the flash of white. And it's almost hard to imagine what this is because so many websites are SPAs these days, so you barely see it. But in the olden days, if you went from one fully rendered HTML page to another HTML page in a multi-page application, what would happen is the browser would need to render the next HTML page. And to do that, it would clear the screen from the page you're viewing right now, Mm -hmm. download the HTML and the CSS, and Mm -hmm. paint the new screen. What happened in between, though? A flash of white. This is especially present if your website isn't light-themed. We clear all those pixels out, and the browser would be render again. And so that flash of white, it's, like, not the biggest deal in the world. It's just, like, a little bit of friction in the user experience of an application. Like, when I'm using an app on my phone, I don't see any flashes of white when I go from one page to another. When I'm using a desktop application, like Keynote, there's not a flash of white when I change from one slide to another. So to build a web application using a multi-page application approach, having flashes of white appear as the user changes between screens in the app, it's just like one of those weird UX frictions that's like, this just kind of sucks. You know what I mean?
1: There's nothing as a developer that I could do about it. because
2: Not if you're building building, a
1: multi-page application. I'm building a multi-page application it's on the browser to go from one, make that transition, download everything, re-render. But that's not really on me. Um, And so
2: it was out of my hands. So this is one thing that a single page application really excels at in comparison to a multi-page application, traditionally. Because we're shifting the responsibility of routing and rendering to the client, when you change from one page to another in a single page application, the browser's not having to completely re-render the entire HTML. In,
1: in fact, we'd only, in theory, re-render what's changed, right? Kind of exactly, diff. like, yeah. I've got a toolbar, a sidebar, whatever footer. Like I don't, I shouldn't
2: yeah, be re stay. Those that. Those stay in place that we're not Static. removing them. Right. Yeah. And so you get this really lovely application-like experience that's very reminiscent of using an app on your phone or a real native desktop app. As you change pages, it just changes and we're not having these flashes of white in between. So, okay. MPAs can't quite do that, but that's not true anymore because browsers have overcome this and Chrome specifically implemented this via a feature called paint holding. Okay. So what paint holding is, is if I am changing from one URL to another, but I'm on the same origin, So let's say I'm on liveloveapp.com and I'm looking at the blog and then I go and look at the free architecture reviews page because I've gone from one HTML file to another on the same origin, liveloveapp.com. Chrome is going to do paint holding during this transition. So it's going to hold on to all the pixels that it's rendered from the previous screen. Mm -hmm. And then in the background, it's going to go fetch the HTML and CSS for the next page. Mm -hmm. And it's going to fully render that and then it's going to switch from the pixels it retained previously to the new pixels that's rendered in the background without a flash of white. I'll still get a flash of white if I'm going from a URL in one to origin to an or, to another URL on a completely different origin. You still see a flash of white then, but if I'm on the same origin, the browser is now going to hide or mask that flash of white in between
1: pages. And that makes a lot of sense because if I'm browsing, I think Wikipedia is an MPA. If I'm browsing Wikipedia, and i go from one page to the next like a lot of what i see again that top bar the side nav or stuff like it's going to pretty much remain pretty static like pixel wise and right. so i get this kind of better flow this better experience as so i go from one page to the next
2: yeah so this makes it possible to have nice transitions in a multi-page application something that you if you're building for the web before you would have needed an spa um to overcome so so, no. what do I have to do as a developer? Nothing. You just get what? to enjoy it. Browsers did this for you. You just get to enjoy the fact that this is now how browsers work. They used to not work this way. Now they do. Happy days. Easy peasy. Happy days. Simple.
1: This seems really simple to implement, right? I mean, <laughs> it can't be that hard. <laughs> how hard could it be
2: to completely change the rendering origin and hold on to all that memory? Yeah. No big deal. Easy. Simple. Fact, they should have done so this easy. 25 years ago. It,
1: well, Safari did it first. We know Safari the most did it, it first. I mean, I'm saying, market. like,
2: what are the Netscape guys thinking? Like, come on, come paint on. holding
1: from day Should one.
2: Three point one, easy peasy. Uh, uh,
1: okay, so we've got paint holding. What are some yep. other things that are causing the shift back to MPAs that Nolan is talking about?
2: Okay, so you already hit on this a little bit when we were talking about paint holding, but an SPA typically when you're changing from one URL to the other. Only re renders the part of the screen that's affected by that change in the URL. So, like if I'm on a traditional blog and I've got a top bar and a side navigation, the blog content, if I go from one blog article to the next blog article, an SPA is only going to re render the blog content. It's not going to re render the nav bar or the sidebar because those haven't changed between routes. What this means is that if you're going like if you're using the back and forward buttons in your browser, after you've navigated around an SPA for a while. Navigation is really fast because we're rendering so little and the client's doing it all. And client machines these days are just so fast. Fast. Like my my iPhone's probably one of the fastest computers that I own and it's just in my pocket all the time. Right. For an MPA, if I hit back or forward What that causes the browser to do is it has to make a whole new round trip back to the server to get that HTML file, re-render, do all that re-rendering trick. It's a whole set of network requests. Plus, it has
1: to go get all those blocking, it's got to get all the CSS, it's got to download those, it's got to parse it, it's got to put that in, it's got to do the same thing if you've got blocking JavaScript, it's got to download that, it's got to parse it, it's got to execute it. There's a lot of stuff
2: that happens. And not only that, but like the... SPA can, because it's all running client-side, can do some really advanced tricks. Like if you're using a state management library, you can be holding on to previous states. You're skipping unnecessary network requests as you're navigating back and forth. You can do, yeah, prefetching where you are in the background, loading the next blog post to make that extra fast. Like there's just so many advantages to an SPA in terms of the back and forward experience in making that really quick. And it's there's some like really high percentage of network requests or like is navigation, just a button. it's just, back button. just hitting. Back I'm button.
1: Browsing Amazon, I get to a product and eh, I want to view the product, the, the list I hit back.
2: Right. Yeah. I mean, so
1: I would think like 80% of my navigation is
2: just going back. It, and then it, it's like on desktop, I think it's one in 10 navigations. So of all navigations, searching, clicking on around social media, one in ten all of those is hitting the back button. And on mobile, it's one or one in five. So like this is a big part of the user experience.
1: Why is it different
2: uh, on mobile? I don't know. I don't know why people hit back and forth on mobile so much. Maybe it's easier to get to the little gesture. I don't know. Who could say? But, uh.
1: I'm going to go with the gesture. I like it. I like the
2: gesture. It's like, it's just easy to go back.
1: Easier. Well, and it's also easier to manage
2: tabs on desktop. So I'm probably opening more tabs on desktop versus on mobile. I think oh, yeah, also part it. of it. That's it. Yep. Thanks so anyways, for answering that question. These, this is just conjecture on that part. I know the numbers are true. Oh, it's no. On desktop no, no, no. You did a scientific study. But as for why yeah. that is, I'm just guessing. <laughs> uh, that's, what, that's what makes sense to me. So anyways, what Chrome has done, again, browser vendors coming in for the rescue, is they've implemented back forward caching. And so this sounds like it's the easiest thing in the world, and I'll be happy to to walk you through why this is so difficult. But if I'm on the same, again, origin, and I click on a link to go to the next page, the page I was just on is actually going to be retained in memory in terms of what was rendered. So if I hit Mm -hmm. the back button, the browser can instantly show me what was on the previous page instead of having to make another network request to go get that page again. What about what if that page becomes stale? I mean, you could always hit refresh if that's the case, like if it if it became stale. And I think the browsers don't retain a very large stack of this. So like things will get dropped off in the what background. What if I miss so a sale
1: price on Amazon? What if somebody instantly changed the price or something went to prime delivery and it
2: wasn't prime delivery before? Well, that you You should write a sternly written letter on your mechanical typewriter <laughs> to Jeff Bezos, and let him know that you deserve that discount. It's not your fault you missed the free shipping. I, the browser caught you up.
1: Mike, you know that I have better connections than that. I'll just go to my buddy Bar, and we'll probably we'll go. Oh through my that.
2: goodness! <laughs> that that for the listeners, you should understand that for some reason. And no, no, no,
1: don't say for some. Don't water it down, Mike for a very good reason
2: among Go I may have more followers on Twitter than Brian Love but no president no american competition presidents like. follow me on twitter quite like brian love and so former president barack obama is one of brian love's followers i'm sure he loves getting that set of tech content and news from brian on a daily <laughs> basis
1: he likes For everything sure. I post. Yeah,
2: DM your DM your buddy bar and let him know that browsers have just really caused you a headache when you missed on that <laughs> sale price.
1: Okay. So back to reality <laughs> here. So this back forward cache though, again as a developer I don't have to do anything, you don't do anything
2: about anything.
1: this. And right. wait, is there an API
2: can I say purge
1: the back cache?
2: I I'm not sure if there is or not. That'd be really, really? interesting to find out or dig into. Do you yeah that would be i don't know no i have
1: noticed but it it, it gro- dropped cuz it dropped in what like chrome 90 something 94 yeah, 95 yeah fairly recent remember.
2: It's fairly well, it's really tricky because like it's not just about holding on to the pixels, it's about holding on to the entire state of that page. So like if that page yeah. had some javascript running, the browser is going to intelligently like suspend javascript, suspend all the JavaScript that's running, suspend the yes. task queue and keep right. all of that in memory. So when you come back, it Wild. just kind of picks up where you left off from. So again to answer your question of like, well what if the price changed? Well, if you're the it's developer, of the that Amazon have page, a, you'd, you'd have a little bit of JavaScript that would keep that. That would fire update, off anyways right? or whatever exactly. it is.
1: Something streaming in those price changes or whatever. Exactly. Yeah.
2: So um, it's really quite intelligently built out and it's uh, very well thought out. And I'm really excited about this coming to Chrome because now if you're building an MPA, you get to have a really fast, nearly instant back and forth experience, just like SPAs. Yeah
1: yeah i don't know about the api story i did notice underneath the application tab in chrome dev tools there's now like a clear button so you can clear that back forward cache yeah i don't know what that and that must have well that's probably hitting a browser api so i don't know maybe there is a public api for it not sure anyways okay there's one more you wanted to talk about
2: yes um so this one is not that big of a deal. It's just one of those things that was like an aha moment for me, or I had not thought of it in this way. But if you've been building for the web, you have, might have heard of service workers over the past five years, they've been quite a big deal. Yep. There's a lot of use cases for service workers, um, but at a fundamental level, they give you an opportunity to um, interact with your web page's ability to make network requests of any kind. Mm-hmm. whether it's loading in html or css or javascript mm-hmm. or making just a full-on api request service workers can kind of sit in between the server and your app and so in um in a typical use case for an spa you're not going to write a service worker but a lot of frameworks are going to ship with a service worker that's going to cache all of the javascript for you in the browser so that you have a really lovely time coming back to an spa and it loading up instantly It also enables an offline use case for SPAs where I can come back to an SPA because all of the JavaScript necessary for that SPA has been cached by my service worker. Even in the absence of a network connection, that SPA can still uh, run or operate. And SPAs do all that routing client side. So it makes a lot of sense that an SPA uh, can leverage a service worker for offline functionality. What this article makes an argument for, and again, it makes total sense that this would be the case, but like a service worker could just cache any HTML file. And so an MPA can actually use a service worker for a really nice offline experience too. Of course, um, and, and it makes sense. It's just something I had not thought about. It's kind of a cool, oh yeah, obviously that's how you could use a service worker. It's just I hadn't thought of using a service worker with an MPA right. in this way. Um, so, you know, not, not, that that's not as big of like a, wow, um, you know, this is so big for browsers to do this. It just happens to be what um, a new way to think about this. Yeah. Uh, So, you know, I really appreciate Nolan Lawson going through making this case for MPAs um, because, yeah, browsers are changing. The API is available to us. The developers is changing. And now we're seeing a new set of frameworks coming out like Astro and Quick and Helder.js that are Mm -hmm. Letting you build, uh, Remix is another one, letting you build Mm -hmm. these MPAs that are kind of working on top of all the great work that SPAs have introduced to give really fast user experiences to users with actually small JavaScript bundles.
0: Mm
1: -hmm.
2: With actually small JavaScript bundles. And that's the key. In most cases, no JavaScript
1: bundles. Or no. Right, yeah. Just render the HTML or like quick keep state in html right so um yeah pretty interesting stuff well it's a good thing angular 14 came out just in time for that <laughs> i'm just
2: yeah you can see you can just see just the kidding. shifts happening you can see the shifts happening so anyways yeah. yeah thanks thanks to nolan Lawson for the article it's a great one i really recommend checking it out again the title of that was the balance has shifted away from spas or spas uh and how we might be using mpas or MPAs in the future MPAs MPAs. Fantastic, uh,
1: thanks for sharing that, Mike. We're gonna talk about one last uh, article. Uh, we'll try not to get trapped in this too much. I think this, we're gonna talk about this at a very high level. Uh, but yeah. one of the things, I saw this article come up on dev.2, and this was uh, written by a user, username Sloan. Um, and we'll have a link to this in the show notes. And they basically said, "Hey, so my colleague leaves brutal and rude feedback when reviewing my code. Just in my humble opinion, intense and unnecessary, and definitely unprofessional. This feedback is given on a fairly recurring basis, and I don't think I can stand much more of it. How do I bring this up to them in a way that's effective and professional? And how can I get this behavior to stop? What are your thoughts, yeah. Mike?
2: I have so many thoughts about this. Um, I've I've had the unfortunate experience that two times immediately come to mind of being bullied in the workplace like this by someone who is gave really brutal and rude feedback and that's just kind of their mo and it's it really sucks if you're a developer who has to deal with somebody whose dynamic it operates this way it can be a really frustrating and honestly draining experience and can lead to workplace burnout if you have to interact with a colleague who um, delivers feedback in a way that is insulting or rude or intense or unnecessary Mm -hmm. so you know first off I'm so sorry to the anonymous submitter who put who posted this question. That sucks. Um, Likewise. Just person up front. Yeah, I really feel yeah. for you. Yeah. yeah, but it immediately reminds me. With. Yeah, it reminds me of a book that I I'm going to put quotes around this air quotes read at my previous job. Um, for those who have worked with me and had book clubs with me, you know I don't actually read. Reading is not a skill that I possess. So I digested this book through other means but it's called Radical Candor by Kim Scott. And Brian, I know you and I have talked about this book a couple of times, mm-hmm. but Kim Scott kind of lays out um, this way of thinking about delivering feedback as being along two axes. Do you care personally about the person that you are giving the feedback to? And are you willing to challenge them directly? And basically you can kind of think of this as creating um, a spectrum of two kinds of people. Uh, First off, if you don't care personally, and you're not willing to challenge directly, you're just being manipulative and insincere. And I don't believe there's a lot of those people in the world. I, I do genuinely believe that most people are good in the world. That's my philosophy on life. And so I don't believe I've ever worked with anyone who's manipulative, manipulative or insincere towards me, at least I hope not. I think there's always other things going on. And for people that this person is interacting with is probably somebody who feels quite comfortable challenging people directly, but doesn't care about you personally. And that results in behavior. That's just obnoxiously aggressive. Um, And, you know, uh, I'm just going to say it bluntly kind of makes them a bit of an asshole. And it sucks to work Mm -hmm. with those kinds of people because they're not caring about the way that you feel when they deliver feedback to you or challenging you. Um, First off, I, I do, like I said, I do think people are genuinely good. I think people can be obnoxiously aggressive and not realize they're being obnoxiously aggressive. Mm-hmm. And, and that's you know, easy
1: to do in today's day and age with the internet where you just kind of put something into a text box and hit it, an enter button or submit, yeah right? Or submit a
2: pull p- request. You,
1: you know, you don't actually look at that person's face when you're telling them this because <laughs> otherwise right. they probably look at you like, what the? It f- removes the human element, you? right? Yeah, it definitely does.
2: And so that's, you know, that the first thing I would do if I were in your shoes is like think through like, what is this, what is the way in which I'm engaging with this person? Are we engaging through a medium that they get to be obnoxiously aggressive towards me and they are not realizing it? Another big, another big factor that can contribute to this. And I've been in this situation is now that we're working more and more remotely, we're also working more and more globally. And you can have team members that are coming from different cultures, different backgrounds. Maybe the language that you speak is not their native language. Right. And so the way that they're coming off could be obnoxiously aggressive to you, but in their culture or in their understanding of their language, they are not intending to be that way. And so kind of think through like, put, put the empathy hat on, try and understand the other person, where are they coming from? What might be contributing to them being obnoxiously aggressive? And so an easy fix, if it happens to be one of those things, is just address it. like be somebody who does care about them personally and challenge them directly and say your behavior in these circumstances is making me feel this way are you intending to act this way and just just challenge them on it unfortunately some people are just being obnoxiously aggressive and you know that that's where the bullying comes in when someone genuinely does not care about you and is still challenging you directly and getting out of that can be really quite tricky so i'd recommend two things Brian, I'll be curious to hear if you agree with or disagree with these first off this is just brutally honest and blunt start documenting the instances in which you're being bullied write them down catalog them and date them if the situation doesn't get better you might need to get a manager involved or someone from HR involved, and you're gonna be really happy that you have that documentation that shows exactly how this is unfolded. Mm-hmm. You wanna start documenting early. Hopefully you'll never need it, but it's gonna be really difficult to get out of a situation if this is happening in a way where there's no one has visibility into it. From there, reach out to a peer who's hopefully either at the same level as the person bullying you in the company hierarchy or above. Let them know what's going on, Ask them to help you in challenging this person directly. Because that's kind of what you're going to need. You're going to need an ally who can challenge that person and say, this behavior is not acceptable in this culture or in this workplace. Mm-hmm. So find a champion, get a champion to try and help you out, to try and change this person's behavior. If that doesn't work, that's kind of when you're going to need to rely on that documentation, escalating it up to mm-hmm. a supervisor or to an HR person to try and get that situation. What do you think, Brian?
1: I, I agree with uh, all a lot of, of that I agree with the documentation aspect of it. I think that's a good thing. I think some people might hear that and say, well, why is the onus on me to now do this extra work of documenting? Why do why am I responsible now for this? Um, and I think that's a healthy kind of pushback against that as well, kind of saying, mm-hmm. you know, I'm the victim here. And this the aggressor is kind of coming at me. Um, but I think it will probably help the in that case, if somebody is being kind of a bully or aggressing you, at least that's also, it's also a good way for you to kind of an outlet for you to kind of describe what's happening. So you can kind of work through that a little bit on your own as well. Sure. Um, but I think it's, it's pretty important. I think if it comes to a repetitive aspect of it to start to engage, like you said, uh, a colleague or a champion or somebody who can kind of come in and help. Yeah. And I think empathy is a really good thing to exercise in that regard, but it's also important to understand that, you know, if, if, you know, this person is coming at you aggressively and they don't care about you and, uh, as kind of a human being, um, that you're not at fault here. Like there's nothing no. you did to deserve this. You, you, it's not like, you know, you're bad or you're doing something wrong. Um, and then that just needs to be addressed at kind of a higher level.
2: So absolutely. I also want to point out, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to hit on that documentation one point you know it's it, not many of us get to be in supervisor roles or interact with hr and so part of this process we might you might not have had the opportunity to build an understanding of from an hr perspective firing employees is really difficult and you never want to fire an employee and hopefully situations can be resolved but when you have a bully on staff they're not responding to feedback it's probably healthiest for that company to let that person go in that case firing an employee requires you to have a good bit of documentation typically to protect yourself from lawsuits wrongful termination legal. lawsuits that kind yeah, of thing sure and so building that documentation it kind of sucks you're right you're the one being bullied right doing the work it's just going to be a necessary component to making an adjustment in personnel if this situation yeah. can't be resolved in in a better or more amicable way yeah i it think it sucks to talk about but it's just it's just kind of the yeah. reality of being a supervisor or dealing yeah. with these kinds of situations
1: Yeah, I think the other question to this is like kind of, I think there's a couple of ways to also handle it. Like obviously you can, if it's toxic and it is traumatic, like getting yourself out of that situation as soon as possible is probably a good thing to do. Um, And sometimes I think as maybe the victim in the situation, you want to keep, you want to try to make it better, right? You're like, I want to fix this. I, I like the company. I like working with, you know, Susie's my best friend at the company, whatever it is like i don't I don't really want to go leave. maybe I can change the place, and I don't think that's an unhealthy perspective to have, but sometimes there comes a point when unless it comes from leadership or from a manager, like you're not going to be able to affect that change, and getting right. out of there might just be the best thing you can do for your own mental health and for your for your family and for yourself. Um, and so that's certainly thankfully i think as you know kind of in the software engineering space we have fairly good mobility in terms of job opportunities um and especially with work from home or remote work uh, you could probably start looking at other opportunities out there that might provide a safer environment yeah with that said i certainly like my heart definitely bleeds for people that are in the situation that want to make that affect that change and they stick through it for months and months and months or maybe years and years dealing with and it may be just a toxic culture where it's not just one person that acts like this but it's a general team environment where everybody's just kind of mean and disrespectful Um, and that can bear down on you as a person um, over a long period of time that can be a really challenging situation to be in. Absolutely. I also think that there's a couple of ways that from management perspective that we can also set up some boundaries and some guidelines to help prevent this type of behavior from happening. Um, you know, that's something that I think that, you know, certainly in the coding world, when, talk, when we talk about like reviewing PRs, I don't think we do a really good job training people on how to do that um, in a very candid way, but a very respectful way, but also like in, in an effort to improve the quality of the code. And we do obviously interject a lot of our own opinions when it comes to that process. You know, I would suggest you do this this way or rename this variable to this thing or put spacing here or whatever it is. Um, And so you can set up some systems. And thankfully, we have a lot of good systems in place today from an automated build perspective. Like, thank goodness for prettier, (laughs) right? (laughs) I mean, like, like, we just don't need to argue about code formatting anymore. Like, I hope anyways, we don't need to do that. Um, And you can also put some boundaries around kind of code reviews as well. Um, One of the things that I've kind of been turned on to in the last couple of years is called conventional comments. Uh, There's a website, I think it's conventionalcommons.org. We'll put that in the show notes, Uh, but basically... You know we've got conventional commits, which kind of is a nice structured way in terms of how we do commits and commit messages and uh, kind of tagging and that type of thing. Uh, and there's also approach that we can use in terms of PR comments and how we label those, whether they're nitpicks or thoughts or suggestions or issues, whether they're blocking or non-blocking, uh, and that can kind of give some context around a comment. Now, of course, you know. If this person is being extremely rude and hateful and mean i'm not sure that any sort of system is going to prevent that, but at least we can put some systems in place that encourage healthy respectful candor and feedback around code. Um, And if we're all kind of marching towards the same pursuit of good code quality and wanting to work with each other on a team that's healthy and safe we will be open to kind of setting up some boundaries like that so um that's a, something to check out if you haven't heard of it so
2: yep so i really hope for the anonymous author that you get out of the situation you know it really sucks but i hope it really resolves in a way that's healthiest for you
1: yeah agreed agreed all right mike that's our news of the week so we yes. talked about the balance has shifted away from spas we talked about angular 14 we talked about brutal feedback from colleagues So, Mike, we're going to shift into our final segment, then we're going to close this puppy down. Finding joy. What are you doing lately to get out there and to find joy in your life outside of Angular 14 and standing (laughs) components?
2: Well, I think the way that I found joy this past week is fairly similar, if not the exact same way that you found joy. So, Brian and I, along with a couple of our buddies... We just floated down, was it 80 miles of the lower Deschutes River? 28. 28. Oh, I've been saying 80. 28 nope. miles <laughs> of the lower Deschutes River. 28. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, Over a three day period during the salmon hatch, which is a special kind of fly, to do yep. some fly fishing for some rainbow trout. Gorgeous rainbow
1: trout, all natural. 100% Oregon raised rainbow trout. These aren't stocked
2: or anything. These, no, are... these are actual wild rainbow trout. One of the few places yeah. you can fish for wild rainbow trout and their native habitat. Yeah, pretty so spectacular. It was going through bends, which Brian mentioned is quite a different uh, part of Oregon than what you probably conjure up in your mind. It's so like really imagine canyons and yeah. a river flowing through those canyons and just almost a few the trees Grand Canyon, but obviously not as big. Yeah, not as big as Grand Canyon, but definitely like pretty dramatic canyon environment that you're floating through. And you've it's like it's like steeped in Americana somehow for me, because you've got train tracks for going sure. alongside for the sure. river. So you have like you know, just trains hauling tons of cargo going along the river as you're floating down it. On the other side of the river is uh, you know a Native American land, and yep. you have wild horses running alongside of that and uh, black bears and uh, bighorns and in the river itself you've got just beautiful birds the the red-winged blackbird and mm-hmm. the river you have otters and i saw an otter out there Ponds of osprey and they're all you know creating their nests right now and so i mean it's just like injecting americana and that you know that image of like the west into your veins for 3 days straight it's uh, nice it it's pretty good. I would. It's pretty good. <laughs> it's it's pretty good. It's a of ways to find joy. It's a solid way to find some joy for yeah. a couple of days.
1: And one of the best things about what we did is we did a guided trip. Now, That's I right. you could do this on your own, uh, but the nice thing about a guided trip is they know the river, they know how to paddle the river, which is pretty important. You don't want to hit a giant boulder and right rip the boat get, open, rip the boat open, or get hurt. <laughs> uh, so they. They uh, really great guides. So we had Colin and Sterling as our guides and uh, they kind of show us where to fish, kind of help us with kind of everything that we're doing and walk us through that. So it's definitely a nice experience. If you're new to fly fishing, they'll take you out, teach you the basics and kind of get you out there and really show you just how fun it can be to get out in the the middle of nowhere, just enjoy nature.
2: Yeah. One of the things that I really appreciate about that experience is if if you have not fished before. Um I grew up on the Alabama Gulf Coast and so my father fished a lot when I was when I was a kid. But there's a lot more to fishing than just sticking your lure in the in the water and hoping a fish bites. Yep. Um you have to really understand the fish that you're trying to get, mm-hmm. you have to understand where they are in the body of water that you're fishing, mm-hmm. how they behave,
1: what and so there's a
2: lot more about fishing. Than just like sticking a hook in the water, hoping the fish bites. Yeah. And so in our group of, I think there was what, four or five of us, Five. there was a very experienced person in our group. um, One of Brian and I's buddies. And then Brian's actually been doing a good bit of fly fishing and on his own since moving to Ben. And so I'd say he's a little more advanced than even the other three of us were. And so what a guide really does is helps normalize or kind of even out the playing field to make sure we're all having a good time. So, you know, they yeah. can put the really experienced fishers in a place where they want to go, and then for those of us who really don't know what we're doing, you know, they're doing seventy percent of the fishing for us by saying, "Hey, there's 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 trout in this particular part of the river, and you need to fish or do this very particular thing to pull the trout out," and really guiding you through it. So that way, all of you, regardless of experience level, can have a good time, and we all caught lots and lots of trout. So it was definitely we a good did, time.
1: we did. Now you mentioned, Mike, that you have more Twitter followers than me. How many fish did you catch on said trip?
2: <laughs> I think my final count was 24, 22 of which were whitefish. Yeah, I caught a lot of fish.
1: Yeah, that is fantastic.
2: Yeah. What about you? What was your final I got count? To,
1: I got to 30. You
2: did get to 30. I,
1: I know that's not, I wasn't the most in the group, but I was still pretty proud of that. So I had uh, 15 on the first day, 14 on the second day. And I only caught one on the, the kind of half day at the end. Um, but yeah, though, the one that I did catch was just on the dry fly, which was super fun.
2: Yeah. I caught one on the dry fly too. On the, on the last day we each managed to pull mm-hmm. a, a trout out on the dry fly, which is a so lot fun. of fun. Um, you know, something I want to mention, Brian said that this is one of a few places you actually get to fish for rainbow trout in sort of their natural environment. Like these aren't farmed and dumb, these are. Real wild rainbow trout. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, thinking about sustainability and making sure the sport gets to enjoy by lots of folks. We didn't keep a single trout. These were all catch and release. All catch and release yeah right we pulled no fish out of the water you're allowed to by license i think you're allowed to pull two fish out per day two between like 10 and 13 inches they have to be a specific size and all that yes so if you want to you could but we you know we want to make sure the sport gets to be enjoyed by anyone and you know this is a really unique place in the united states where you get to do this kind of fishing and so for us we did it a little bit more sustainably we you know kept all the fish made sure that we weren't harming them too much releasing them back in in a way where they got to continue living in the, in the Deschutes river. And, you know, other folks could enjoy um, Mm -hmm. that really unique part of Oregon in my, in my opinion. Yeah, it is for sure.
1: Very cool. Well, Mike, we did it.
2: We did our first first podcast. podcast. Fantastic. Uh, You know, if, if you are, if you made all the way to the end, let us know what you think, what, you know, what do you want to hear us talk about more? You know, we're, Going forward, we probably want to keep it a blend of what you heard uh, in this podcast. We definitely want to talk about some tech news. We also want to hit on some leadership topics like the brutal feedback from the colleague. And uh, you know, let us know what kinds of topics you want to hear us talk about. We're definitely open to feedback as we continue to evolve and, and develop this podcast. So appreciate everyone joining in and listening. Yeah, likewise. So check us out,
1: liveloveapp.com. And to the listener, thanks for listening. And we'll see you on the next show. See y'all.
0: That's it for today's episode. We'll be sure to keep the conversation going. So stay tuned for more Live Love App discussions and send us a hello by visiting our website at LiveLoveApp.com. And remember, design, develop and deliver absolute joy with Live Love App.